Well, when you think of um, not being in control, when you feel that a situation is not in your own control and getting more and more so as time goes on, or um, a situation that feels absolutely hopeless and getting worse by the second, I recently saw a documentary that I think um, exemplifies both of those feelings and sensations very well, the feeling of hopelessness and being completely out of control and the associated feelings that come with that. I, I saw a, um, it was a, a riveting and even harrowing documentary about Flight 9, British Airways Flight 9, Back in 1982, a flight going from Malaysia to Australia, when for seemingly no reason whatsoever, all four engines flame out and they begin to glide. It seemed like a very normal flight, regular in almost every way. Um, the pilot indicated that the weather was perfect. It was an evening flight, totally smooth, not a cloud in the sky, very experienced crew, hundreds of passengers on their way from Malaysia to Australia. Off they go. They get to their cruising altitude of 37,000 feet. It could not be any more smooth. And so the captain uh, excuses himself. He's going to go use the restroom, get a little rest, walk around a little bit before coming back. Well, after a few minutes, he gets summoned. He walks up the stairs. As he gets to the top, he notices like this, something he'd never seen before, like a very thin mist or smoky film kind of on the floor. And they looked, and it, and it wasn't a fire. There was nothing coming from the hold below, and it didn't seem like there was any electrical fire per se, and he didn't have any explanation for it whatsoever. He goes up into the cockpit, and there is something he's never seen before in these conditions, this massive display of St. Elmo's fire, which is the discharge of static electricity all over the windshield. Usually, there's only two weather phenomena that would allow for this St. Elmo's fire. Neither one was present. Totally clear. They looked at the weather radar, no indication. They looked out the window, and the rings around the engines, each four was red hot. Red hot, glowing, emanating this strange color. And then, one after the other, after the other, after the other, all four engines flame out. I think I'm right, this is the first time in the history of commercial flying that all engines had independently flamed out for no apparent reason. They were totally slack-jawed. They went through checklist after checklist after checklist, and they could not identify the source of the problem. They call back to the airport to see if something's happening. The radio is working, but they can't reach the airport. They don't understand. There are more problems than that. Between where they are now over the Indian Ocean and the airport back in Malaysia is a large mountain. 
there were two speed indicators that were contradicting each other. One said they were going faster, one said they were going slower. So the pilot did something ingenious. He said, well, let's act like one is correct for a while and the other in order to reignite the engines because you have to maintain a certain speed to reignite the engines. And they were going too slow according to one of the speed indicators. Well, if you're gliding in a 747, how do you achieve speed? You've got to go down. Well, when you go down, you lose altitude. Altitude is your friend at that point. And if they couldn't fire up the engine, there would be a point at which they could not get back to the airport because of the mountain, and they would have to crash in the Indian Ocean. And the pilot who's being interviewed said, there was no hope in this situation. Like, it was completely out of his control. Nothing in any of their experience was anything like this. I just, when I saw this, and you're watching this, like, your, your heart will race. Imagining yourself in their situation, completely out of control, a hopeless situation. They were like in their minds imagining we're going to probably die soon. To me, that embodies a situation of hopelessness, being completely out of control. That's what the Apostle John feels in our passage. He feels hopeless. He feels out of control. He weeps because of what's going on in Revelation chapter 5. This may be, this may be the single most glorious passage in the entire Bible. If you had to have one passage that you said demonstrated the weight, significance, and majesty of God, it may be. Revelation chapter 5. If you remember, this is a letter written by God to seven churches contemporaneous with the Apostle John, but it's really written to the church in every age. The church was struggling under persecution and difficulty. The church was under duress. This letter was written to encourage the church, to galvanize the church in John's age and in our own. With that in mind, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Beloved, this is Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. John writes, the beloved disciple writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw 
a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, a number of years ago, I read the John Grisham novel titled The Testament. I don't know if any of you have ever read The Testament. I would say of the John Grisham novels, this probably has the best first 50 pages. The rest maybe drags on a little bit, but the best first 50 pages. And the plot line is like this. The name of the book is called The Testament. It's all about an inheritance, a last will and testament. What's going to happen to it? Where's it going to go? The man who has the testament is worth $11 billion. And back in 1999, that may have been almost double what it is today. Fabulously, enormously wealthy, but he has a terminal disease and soon he will pass away. Well, he has not made the most out of his life. He has a series of former wives and a number of ne'er-do-well children, all of whom he is at variance with. But he's called them all. He knows he's going to die. He's going to convene at this building where the last will and testament is going to be unveiled. And they're going to get their millions and their billions. So guess what? Everyone shows up despite how much they resent and hate their father and regardless of his relationship with them. So he convenes all of them. He has attorneys present. He has medical professionals present to verify that he is of sound mind. Okay. They interview him in front of the attorneys. He's of sound mind. He writes out his will, his last will and testament and bequeaths these millions 
and billions to his family members. They are excited, okay? He gives one stipulation. The will can't finally be unsealed for 30 days. Then it can be fully unveiled to the family. They leave elated. It's wonderful. They go. And as soon as they leave, he asks two attorneys to stay. He tears up the will. He writes a new will. And he gives it to his illegitimate daughter that no one knew about who's doing mission work in Africa. He viewed her to be the only one worthy to receive the benefits of the will when it's unsealed. That's what the scroll is in Revelation chapter 5. It's a will. It's a testament that can only be unsealed under certain conditions. If you look at Revelation chapter 5, look at verses 1 and 2. John is communicating to us a, a door has been opened into heaven and we're the beneficiaries of this. And behind this door is the throne room of the living God that he can only describe by way of pictures because it's so amazing, so glorious, so majestic. And if you remember from last week, do you remember there's this great throne? There's one sitting on the throne, and then around the throne are concentric circles. Do you remember from last week? There is a rainbow encircling the throne, which represents the character of God, the faithfulness of the covenant. Then you have 24 elders that represents the old covenant church, the new covenant church, united, giving praise, honor, and glory to the one on the throne. Then you have these four living creatures, a combination of cherubim and seraphim, the highest order of angel around the throne, all together giving praise to God, the majestic one, the sovereign one. Then this is the climax. This is what we didn't cover last week. All of a sudden, the camera pans to the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. The one who's seated on the throne is the Ancient of Days, God the Father. In his right hand, what is the right hand? The right hand is the, is, is, is the position of power, the place of power. In his hand is a scroll. It is sealed with seven seals. What are those? Imagine in your mind like a ring, a royal ring, a kingly ring that would affix a wax stamp on a document sealing it. This was sealed with seven seals. This would often happen to last wills and testaments. It was sealed with seven seals. What did we say seven is the number of in Revelation? Completion, perfection, fullness. This will, this testament, this inheritance is completely sealed up. No one can see it. No one can look into it. This scroll pictures redemptive history. It pictures the future of God's people. It pictures redemption and salvation for the church. The inheritance the Lord's people will get. And it's sealed. And there's a problem in the text. What's the problem in the text? Look with me at verses 2 and 3. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And then, in a sense, people come forward, if you will. An analysis is done. Verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one in creation was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, why does John weep? Why is he so upset? Why has he come undone that no one can open the scrolls to look into it or peer into it? What does that indicate? What picture does that communicate? To John, that picture is that the inheritance of the saints is in doubt. Redemptive history is not secure. Salvation itself is in question for the Lord's people. If no one can open the scroll, then no one's in control of history. No one's in control of the future of the church. And so the situation seems hopeless. It's impossible, completely out of control. And so he weeps, it says. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Can you relate to the feeling? The feeling of being out of control, of hearing news, of encountering a difficulty, a life circumstance that is beyond you, that feels impossible, that seems impossible, that humanly speaking is impossible, and you lament and weep because it seems hopeless. That's why John is breaking down here. And then the climax, you might even say the climax of Revelation is when things seem to be at their darkest. One strides forth. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, now remember we said that the book of Revelation is building, it is operating on the terminology of the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is alluded to over and over. Look with me. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That goes back to Genesis 49. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the living God, would come from the tribe of Judah. What does being a lion indicate? Power, might, majesty. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this messianic figure, the root of David. How is that relevant? He's not only the lion of the tribe of Judah, this one that's coming forth, the root of David. David's house was disciplined. It was taken down in sin and rebellion. But from this stump, that's the metaphor, that's the picture, there is a stump a tree that gets cut down in the Old Testament, but at some point, this little shoot, a branch comes forth. One of David's line would serve as the Messiah, the future king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered. He has achieved the victory so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so to open the scroll... And the seven seals, to break that open, what does that communicate, this picture? What does it communicate about Jesus Christ? He has control over the future. He 
has purchased redemption for the church. He has control over the inheritance of the saints. He is in possession and has authority over the last will and testament of the church. Redemptive history is not out of control. We don't know how it's all going to unfold, but we know the one who does. Look at the response here at verse 6. The fact that this one has come forward and he can open the scroll and its seven seals, the implications of that, the meaning of that, the fact that the line of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered through his life and death. I, I can't even put into words the significance of it. Look at the response. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, now I see, I see a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so now the picture changes. This one who's come forward who can open the scrolls, it's not the Lion King anymore. What is it? It's the lamb who was slain, who has seven horns. What does that mean? Horns symbolized what? Power, strength, majesty in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Horns symbolize strength. Seven horns is fullness. He has total sovereignty, complete omnipotence. From him come seven spirits going out into the earth. What does that mean? From the person of Jesus Christ flows the Holy Spirit of the living God going throughout the earth to accomplish what the Lord has set out for it to do. The future of the church is not uncertain, not by any stretch. The lamb who was slain has conquered. He has complete sovereignty and control over what happens to the church. His spirit is pouring forth, bringing, drawing people to himself. Look at verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, what did they do? They fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is why our prayers have meaning and significance. God has ordained, ordained the ends, but he's also ordained the means because the lamb, the slain lamb is on the throne and as sovereignty, your prayers and mine matter. Your prayers and mine go to the throne room of the living God. And they may not accomplish everything we want them to accomplish. They accomplish the ends to which they are intended. This is why we can have any confidence whatsoever that our prayers affect things in God's world. Because of this lamb who has complete sovereignty and complete power. Look at verse 9. I want you to notice as I read this how the chorus of worship expands and builds. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why are you worthy? Because you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed People for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, that's the most worthy thing 
that has ever been done in the history of the universe. The God-man, the lamb who was slain, giving his life for the church. That's the ultimate symbol of power. The fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, giving his life for you and me. Only one is worthy. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you won these people. You were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. It's inconceivable. One day we will be co-heirs and co-regents with Christ in the new heavens and the north. Can you imagine what that will be like when he makes all things new? It's too glorious for us to put into words. Look at verse 11. I want you to see how this expands and builds. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, what? The voice of many angels. How many angels? Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. What is that depictive of? They cannot be numbered. The number of angels of the living God who are giving to him all praise and honor and glory cannot be counted. You have the elders, you have the four living creatures, you have myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of the most majestic, glorious beings. What are they saying in verse 12? They were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why are we Christ-centered? As the people of God, because the Bible is Christ-centered. The complete focus on, of heaven is on the Lamb who was slain. Look at verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth. In verse 11, it's the four living creatures and the elders. In verse 12, it's the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and innumerable angels. In verse 13... It's the entirety of creation. Imagine this in your mind's eye. The entirety of creation singing to the Lamb of God. Verse 13. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Beloved, your life and mine at points may seem out of control. Our life is in total control of the Lamb. The Lord Jesus Christ has total sovereignty over his creation. He has the future of the church in his hands. He has your life and mine in his hands. Nothing can happen to you or me apart from his sovereign will or permission. 
a being this majestic, this powerful, gave his life so that people from all over the world would know him and love him. This is the highest end of humanity, to worship Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. This is why we were created. This is why we were redeemed. This is why we gather for corporate worship. This is who we want to introduce to our family and coworkers. This is the highest end to which we were created. Absolutely incredible. You know, I'll finish the story about Flight 9. You probably were wondering, right? <laughs> so they have this algorithm. algorithm. They, have this, they have this chart. They know exactly how many jig jogs they can do going down, trying to restart the engines before it's the point of no return. And when they get pretty low, the engines restart. One after the other, after the other, after the other, for no apparent reason. There is euphoria and celebration as they go back up. And one by one, they all flame out. One after the other, after the other. They go back down to an altitude just over the mountains. They all refire. They get back home. They go outside the plane. It is covered with ash. They did not realize it. They flew into the ash of a volcano that had erupted in the islands close by. They had never experienced this. That's what caused the St. Elmo's fire. That's what caused this mist. That's what shut down the engines. In retrospect, everything made sense. Once they had all the information, I'll tell you this, one day, when we're in glory and we have all the information, everything will make sense. He will wipe away every tear from our eye. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain for the former things will have passed away. People wonder, what will I do in heaven? Is it going to be bored? Who wants to live forever? That will not be in your mind. Bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, the slain Lamb of God, will be the most wonderful thing imaginable. Look at how it ends, verse 14. And the four living creatures, all they could say is, Amen, so be it. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And there was silence in heaven. Total awe at the majesty and glory of the Lamb. Beloved, whatever our view of Him, it is too small. And when you panic, and when you worry, and you have concerns, you can take it to the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Think about what we're going to be doing for eternity, worshiping this God. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we... Thank you for this picture book, this wonderful, elaborate, descriptive picture book of what you have in store for your people. Father, we are a frail people, a finite people, a sinful people. 
Father, we often respond like John as if history is, is, is going out of control. Father, remind us this morning that appearances can be deceiving and that the history of the church, the history of salvation, the inheritance of the saints is absolutely under the control of the slain Lamb of God. Heavenly Father, by the power of those seven spirits, Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to have this same exalted view of Jesus. Help us to love him, serve him, help us to long to worship him and commune with him more than we long for anything else. We pray this in his matchless name, amen and amen.